See, we are so obsessed with the battle that we want God to win for us. But God's focused on the battle he's trying to win in us. Why, God, would you not let us see some progress? Because obedience is our responsibility. Outcome is God's responsibility. And the real faith that will finish and endure and receive the promise that God has made to you through his word and through his spirit, the real faith, Pastor Stan, is to say God is working, even if it's not working. God's at work, even if nothing's moving. God is working in my situation, even if I don't see it right now. God's working on my family. Even if my family's strung out, God's working in my situation. Even though I can't see anything moving right now, God's working on my workplace. Even though I work with a bunch of devils, God's working in my neighborhood. Even though my neighbors are crazy, God's working in my family. Even though my family's lost, the real faith is to say God's working. Even when it's not working, the real faith is, is for a church to say God's working on revival. Even if nothing's happening right now. Right now, God's working in this place, even if it doesn't feel like it. So I've just got to keep on walking. I've just got to keep on marching. I've just got to keep on moving, even if nothing else moves. The voice you just heard is none other than Pastor David McGovern. Pastor McGovern is a great friend of mine. We've been friends for a number of years, and I was honored to sit down and chat with him about all things preaching. This past November, he was speaking a young adult retreat here in Ontario in the beautiful Muskokus, and uh, I had a chance to drop a microphone in front of him and have a great conversation about ministry and preaching the gospel. Pastor David is a church planter in L.A., and they just launched a second campus this past year. And I know both from being a church planter and a pastor as well as his many years as a veteran youth speaker. He's going to have some great things to talk to you that are going to help you improve your communication and improve your preaching of the gospel. So without any further ado, let's jump right into this interview with David McGovern. Hey, Dave, man, how you doing? Man, I'm doing great, Adam. I'm excited to be on The Restorationist. Well, man, I'm glad to to have you. Uh, For those that are listening... Um, and, uh, want to know how, um, a guy from LA is all the way, this is a live in studio interview, I guess. And by studio, we mean, um, the room of the retreat center that, uh, we are in, uh, Dave is here, um, as our uh, speaker for Ontario district hyphen retreat. And I thought this would be an incredible opportunity to have him talk to us about, his approach to preaching, and so, man, we're just so, so, so pumped to have you, and I hope you're surviving the cold. Yeah, the uh, climate is very similar to Los Angeles, um, on, you know, northern Ontario in uh, late November, very similar to L.A., so I'm doing fine. Um, I brought a, a long sleeve t-shirt, um, so I'm prepared for the snow, the ice, the moose, wild Everything. bears. Well, you have had maple syrup, so that's been good. Yes, I have. I did the most Canadian thing that I've ever done. Uh, I think it made me an honorary citizen. 
yesterday we went maple syrup testing at a maple tree farm in the snow. There was a big fluffy white dog. There were maple leaves, maple syrup. It was so Canadian. It was amazing. I, I felt just like apologizing to everybody. Yeah, saying sorry all the just time. Sorry. Sorry, eh? That's right, eh? So um, let's t- let's just jump right in and start talking about uh, preaching. Now, a lot of people have, um, they've heard you preach uh, at, whether it's NYC or youth conventions, youth camps, or hyphen retreats like the one we're doing right now here in Ontario. And, um, but many people may not know your story. And so... If you could, what what is the what is your story um, into preaching? What was your journey from the time that God, you know, called you yeah. to the moment you are now? Take take us through those initial few steps. Yeah, certainly. So, uh, my my family, uh, I don't come from a, a churched background necessarily. Uh, my my dad's. Uh, never been in church, and my family came to God at a church plant in the L.A. area when I was uh, I was about two and a half years old. So I've been fortunate to uh, have been raised in this, and I grew up in a great church. And uh, my pastor Kenneth Fields was a passionate man of God. He was a church planter. Um, he was baptized by Arliss Glass in the China Sea, fighting in the Korean War as an eighteen-year-old. And, um, and brother glass taught him a Bible study, baptized him. He came back to the States and, uh, he began to enter into ministry and answer the call of God in his life. And he planted six churches. The last church he planted was in the LA area. And, um, my, my, uh, family literally stumbled into the, to this apostolic church plant and, um, was delivered from uh, alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, all of that. And uh, but the church I grew up in, um, the pastor I grew up under was just—he was a dynamic man of God, very passionate. And so the atmosphere that I grew up in, it was—it was pretty difficult as a young man to to not feel the call of God in a church like that. And so when I was really young, about seven years old, um, God started calling me to missions and I didn't really understand it all. I started having these dreams about uh, working in the mission field. And what was interesting about these dreams is I saw like, I saw every ethnicity you can imagine. And so it didn't, it didn't really make sense because it wasn't like if it was all Asian people, I'd feel okay. I'm called to Asia or called to Africa or whatever, but it was so multicultural and diverse. And it wasn't until later that God really um, begin to reveal to me that we are called to missions. It was just, we're called to our city, LA, which is one of the most multicultural cities on the planet. Um, but, uh, as a teenager, um, I begin to feel the call of God on my life to preach and I begin to work with my pastor and, uh, and he started me out, you know, preaching a couple of youth services here and there, a couple of Sunday night services, five minutes of fire, that kind of stuff with um, some of the other young men in the church, and uh, just super blessed to have grown up with a with a pastor like that who invested into young men, and I owe uh, so much of my ministry uh, to him, Pastor Kenneth Fields. He passed away um, in two thousand, and so it's been nineteen years since since he's uh, received his his reward. So 
but I know that he's on the balcony of heaven cheering us on. And that's kind of a little bit of my story. Now, um, if you could walk us through, you know, your style, one of the things that is really difficult, um, you know, especially for Pentecostal preachers, because it's so ingrained in us. Don't talk about yourself, disappear, you know, um, but everyone has, one of the things I love about the apostolic church is that not everyone is monolithic. And if you look at other, other groups, right. Uh, other denominational groups, everyone is so much the same. Um, and stylistically personality wise, but it seems like the apostolic movement, it's so diverse. Like we've had, um, brother Scott Graham on this podcast. We've had LJ Harry on this podcast, Josh Carson, um, and, uh, Jerry Dean, Victor Jackson. And if you lined all of those individuals up and you had them preach, I mean, that is an extremely diverse group. Um, and so you have your own unique style and I know this is, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a tough question to think about, um, just cause often we're not used to talking about ourselves in this kind sure. of way, but if you could describe your approach to preaching or your style, what would that be? That's a great question, Adam. And I, I think, um, the best way I could describe it would be that uh, I've learned over over the years that that there's not really I don't think one style that necessarily defines me as a preacher. I think um, uh, I think we focus a lot on style and and we we certainly um, gravitate towards certain speakers and preachers that perhaps stylistically we just resonate with um, and and certainly spirit and content. I think is the overarching narrative of all of this and, and style is, is really a, a matter of, of just currents, um, and kind of going with, with that flow. But I, um, I think that the best way I would describe myself, and that is a, a tough question. I've never really given it a whole lot of thought, but I think the best word I could use would be gears. Um, I have a few different gears and, uh, and, I've developed and, and God's developed a couple different gears as we've been pastoring and church planting. Um, certainly as we've traveled, uh, we've um, been doing itinerant ministry for almost a decade now, traveled in, you know, all, all around North America, um, several different nations. Um, and then this last year, 2018, we were approved to become Metro missionaries to LA. And that was a whole different gear. Yeah. Um, deputation is a different gear. And so you are you are coming into um, different congregations. I mean, you you could be one night in a, a morning service at, at a at a church of seven hundred, and then an evening service at a church plant of twenty people. And so, learning to kind of uh, own the gear, work in that gear, uh, deputation. You had to you know, not just uh, raise budget, but we're also trying to minister to these congregations and be a blessing to them. And about a month into it, I just realized, okay, I'm not going to worry about the, you know, the typical missionary sort of like presentation, the videos, the demographics, the whole 10 minute, 15 minute spiel on the demographics of Los Angeles. I just want to go and minister to these congregations and let God take care of the PIMs and all that. And that worked out really great for us. We were able to finish deputation pretty quickly. Um, but, but I would say just gears, man, like I have a different gear at home. It's a church plant in LA. 
It's not the prototypical um, setting of, you know, of, of the majority of our fellowship, the United Pentecostal church, which is predominantly a Midwest and Bible belt, uh, you know, denomination. Um, so I just, I just have learned to operate in different gears. Obviously I have a different gear for an event like a, a youth convention or a youth Congress that I would have for, uh, let's say this hyphen retreat this weekend where there's 60 kids or 60 young adults or whatever the number is. And it's a more intimate setting. And, uh, and actually I'm learning, I, I think as I've pastored more, I'm learning to appreciate so much these settings, uh, that are a little more intimate and we can kind of just, um, you know, we can kind of just, uh, uh just, it, it's a little more relaxed, a little more intimate and dig into the word and, and not necessarily have to operate in the gear of a large event. Um, and, and then obviously at home, it's different when I travel, it's different. So I think it's just learning to, uh, slip into different gears and, and it doesn't make you, I don't feel disingenuous in any way. It's just, you know, Paul said it this way. I've got to become all things to all men. So we have some license and some liberty to operate, um, a little bit differently depending on the context of, of the audience that we're preaching to. I was thinking of that that same verse where Paul said, I've become all things to all men, um, and how it's so important that we don't put ourselves in a, a stylistic box, uh, which is, I think, fantastic. And so, But pragmatically, just to kind of probe a little bit deeper, um, what's that look like or feel like? Um, you know, I grew up in a church plant, too. Uh, my dad basically relaunched a church in a small town along the Quebec border, um, but an hour away from Ottawa, um, and uh, it was predominantly uh, French, French Catholic, but not a churched French Catholic town, a culturally French Catholic town. And uh, so that was that's a completely different vibe than, you know, being in Mississippi at a camp uh, where occasionally if you preach really loudly, they throw ties at you, which I was not, I was not prepared for when I was like, what is happening? And they, I realized that was a thing. Um, but if could you explain to us? So people have heard you, they've heard you at youth Congress. They've heard you at youth convention. They've seen that gear. What's the church planter gear sound feel like? Give us, um, kind of just walk us through your approach to preaching to an unchurched, pagan audience uh and you know that that's unconverted or or just new christians sure. how's sure. that how what's that what's that feel like yeah um well i i would say like places like la new york toronto um san francisco etc cities that you know are so far removed not only geographically but literally universes away culturally um, biblically from the Midwest and from the Bible belt. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of, so you have to be careful to not, to not adjust too much. We are who we are. Yeah. Um, we are, we are apostolic. That is who we are. And a lot of mistakes that I've seen, um, urban preachers try to make or make is, is to try to sort of, exegete in a way that caters um to a complete and utter biblical illiteracy 
um, sort of kowtows to sort of this cultural pluralism and and what you're left with is kind of a like a linguistic or theological even compromise and in an attempt to just relate to culture you know many urban preachers have created this sort of like meta language that's culturally approved yeah and it doesn't risk any offense because we're preaching to pagans I'm not in the Bible Belt. I don't get to just slip into my defaults that are comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in what we have to be careful of in our urban settings is that, um, in, in I've noticed, and I've, this is just an observation and maybe a judgment, perhaps I don't know. But this is, I observe and I I take notes on what I observe. But I've observed a lot of the church um, it, w- outside of the apostolic realm a lot of the uh attempts at church planting in my city i've kind of studied and i see where like eschatology is existentialized right yeah and like biblical prophecy is sterilized and like the bible narrative is sort of filtered through psychology right and it's all in the interest of of not offending and 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 hoping that like our pagan hearers will take us seriously, but like the power of God is the gospel Yeah, is either the power of God into salvation or it's nothing. That's right. Like there's no in between. And, and so when it's ambiguous, it loses everything. It loses all of its power when the preacher uh, is ambiguous. And so this is an age old question, right? It's as old as the new Testament, at least. Yeah. Um, how did the New Testament Christian communicators preach the gospel to cities, right? Well, they were able to use the Greek language that was available, yet while rejecting the cosmology that the Greek language was conceived in. So Paul, I think, in Acts 17 is a prime example of this. Paul is on the Aeropagus. This is like the hub of pagan culture. Yeah, You know, it's Mars Hill. He's you know, and at this point, we've seen the power of God, the gospel. We've seen it to the rich and to the poor, the Jew, the Gentile, the slave, the free, man, woman, everybody. But now it's the Aeropagus, okay? And so the tension becomes this. Can the gospel hold its own in this sophisticated, urban, uh, intelligentsia sort of prominent university town, okay? Because this is Athens, so this is the heart, this is the pinnacle of pagan culture, right? This is the city of Pericles and Plato. And in Acts 17, Paul appeals to their religious nature, he appeals to their education and their culture, but he never minces words about the gospel. He preaches the death, the burial, the resurrection. He preaches heaven and hell. He preaches the judgment to come. And the response to Paul's address is like the same as he encountered elsewhere. Verse 32 says, some mocked. Verse 34 says, some believed. So, you know, um, proclaiming the gospel, like in an urban setting, in a pagan, like we're not even post-Christian. Yeah. We're pagan. LA is a pagan city. So proclaiming the gospel is not judged. So what I'm, what I'm answering your question, it's a long answer, but um, what does it look like? It looks like not judging the success of my preaching by the same metrics that I would judge it elsewhere. And so where the word is faithfully preached, even if there's not an approving response, but where the word is faithfully preached, some believe, some mock. That's part of 
exegeting in a pagan culture. Um, you know, even Paul with his like unsurpassed, you know, wisdom and oratory does not remove the offense of the gospel. In fact, he accentuates it. And so what it looks like in a church plant setting like LA is not, is not holding back operating in a different gear, perhaps stylistically operating in a different gear, perhaps in the way it's presented, but not holding back, uh, not creating this sort of Esperanto, this sort of like ambiguous, like double speak that doesn't really mean anything. It may sound good. It may, it may look good on Twitter, but it's not really, it's not really confronting anybody. It's not changing anybody's lives. It's not getting anybody to really think on a different plane. And so I would say that uh, in, in my context, the way that it looks differently is that we don't use the same metrics to judge success. A successful sermon in, in, in a church plant in Hollywood um, may not look like, you know, 100% of the people on their feet clapping and shouting me down and throwing ties at me. Maybe it looks like yeah. people sitting and being quiet because they're actually, you know, absorbing the truth that's kind of hitting them square between you the eyes. You just tip their whole mind and way of viewing the world upside down and their head is spinning as they process this new story that they've probably never heard before or at least yeah. not heard this way. Right. Right? Is that, does that make, is that, is that an accurate kind of summation? There, yeah. it's that that you know stylistically, you may not there. There's probably no B three whaling behind you. Correct, correct. And um, but the content is the same. This the the stylistic kind of packaging and the expected response will be different than what you would get Midwest Bible Belt Church Dairy. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I we're in a similar circumstance. So I mean, you've been to my church in Hamilton, so we are. We have, at one point, was a pretty major drug distribution point uh, in an apartment building. Uh, right next, on the other side, um, is, a, um, is a sauna that um, also uh, acts as a brothel. And that's, that's our downtown. Like, that, yeah. that's where we're at. So, you know, we pick up needles pretty much every Sunday. And um, one of the things that, you know, I have learned being in that environment for so long, being, you know, I was a youth pastor, became a youth pastor there when I was 19. And um, is that all of the stuff that sometimes we depend on, stylistic things um, uh, and, you know, audience response, and then even like rhetoric, rhetoric that we use, like churchy phrases to go the crowd and make sure they are, you know, make sure they're with us. You can't, you can't rely on style. You can't rely on button pushes. You have got to rely on the anointing of God and the power of the Bible. Right. You've got, I have, and this is one of the things, you know, this is why you connect so well in Ontario because we're very similar to L.A. and that the whole province is fairly secular, especially the urban areas and the city areas. Um, we're very secular, and when you come and you preach, there's not tons of, you know, fancy you know, stories and you don't do a stand-up comedy routine at the beginning. We are going to open up the Bible and you're going to preach Jesus and the power of the spirit. And it's going to come and it's going to apply to people's lives. And that confrontation still there. The, the challenge is still there. The call to repentance is still there, but 
I have found, at least in my context, maybe it's similar in yours, that that all of the stuff that preachers rely on to, you know, be good, I'm doing air quotes here, um, to be good and to sound good, you can't rely on. You have got to depend on the Spirit and and the power of the Bible to strike the human heart and challenge the way they see the world. And then, yeah, like you said, the metrics, the metrics are changing. You're, you're not looking for people to run around the room. You're looking for people to come to repentance Correct. and yeah. change their whole life. Because like in our discipleship classes, and we got to shift gears, but like in our discipleship classes, we, we can't do the come to three Saturdays. And, you know, you're a member now as, as long as you've been born again, you know, because everyone is, is they don't have a biblical worldview. So we have like a whole lesson uh, in our discipleship, like doing drugs is bad and alcoholism is bad for you and committing adultery goes against God's plan for solid homes and marriages because people don't know. Yeah. They're just, they're so secular. They just don't know. So that's cool, man. I, I that's one of the things I really wanted to hear. I felt was going to be so helpful to people um, uh, when it comes to, when it comes to uh, preaching, especially in an unchurched context, because I feel like society's becoming increasingly more secular. Absolutely. And we have got to, we've got to think about how we're going to reach those secular people. Otherwise we will increasingly be speaking into a vacuum. Yeah. And, and our cities are, are just growing uh, exponentially and uh, people more and more moving into our cities. And, and uh, you know, we just, we have to do a better job at, reaching our cities, planting churches in our cities. And if we're going to do that, we have to understand um, how uh, to communicate to these, to these types of people and get outside of our sort of comfort zone, um, like you said, and, and just be, be comfortable with the gospel being enough. Yeah. The gospel is enough. Some will believe and some will mock, but the gospel's enough. So let's talk about your prep. Yeah. Um, um, and so we gotta we gotta get inspired. Um, we got to stay creative. Preaching is very much a creative, you know, medium because you're trying to connect the hearts of people to the Word of God in a way that sparks change. What inspires you? How do you like to stay fresh? What do you read? What do you listen yeah. to? That kind of stuff. Well, there's this great podcast I listen to called the <laughs> Restorationist. Yeah. Um, no, I. Uh, I read this in, um, in an article a while back, this phrase, and it, and it really stuck with me. It said, every pastor, preacher, church leader must master the art of transition without relocation. So kind of stuck with me. And so this just means like the ability to stay fresh, to learn, to adapt, to grow, and to try new things in the same church or in the same ministry over a long period of time. And uh, too many pastors do relocation without transition, right? They, they get frustrated or they stay at a church, <coughs> excuse me, or a ministry until they run out of ideas or energy or support. And then they, they pack up for a new ministry or a new church or a new location and kind of take the same sort of staleness with them. And they might experience um, a short honeymoon at the new church or the new ministry or new location until the same problems happen again because the preacher hasn't changed anything but geography. So <laughs> learning to master the art of like transition without relocation is, is crucial. It's key. And, and so the way that 
that you do that is number one, you never stop learning. Um, a pastor who stops learning, a preacher who stops learning, stops leading. A pastor who stops leading, stops pastoring, even if they stay on the job. So, <laughs> excuse me, you never, you, you just, you have to never stop learning. And then uh, you, you kind of have to find what I would, what I would call, and I, I borrowed this phrase from a book I read years ago called the, the seven habits um, of effective ministry. And, and uh, the, the phrase that I stole from this book is finding your irreducible minimum is, is crucial to stay in fresh because once you know what your irreducible minimum is, your core concepts that you want to make sure you convey every time you step into the pulpit, everything else is non-essential. So everything else can, can change everything else you can tweak and work on. But as long as you know, your absolute minimum, your core concepts that every time I step into the pulpit, this is what I'm trying to convey that helps me stay fresh because when I major in the minors, there's no, there's no easier way to get frustrated and become stale than sort of focusing on the wrong thing um, and then be willing to adapt. I've changed the way that I preach. If I'm, I, I tried, I thought a lot about this. I think I've changed the way that I preach probably three times, at least three times in the last 19 years that I've been um, preaching on a consistent weekly basis. And, um, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about which, what, what kind or what style of preacher are you? You know, are you, um, expository preaching, topical preaching. Do you memorize? Do you transcript? Do you bullet point? You know, I, and I, I just feel like as long as I know what my irreducible minimum, minimum is, um, I, I can be willing to adapt to my season of life, um, to my context that I'm in, whether I'm in an established church or in a church plant, whether I'm in the Midwest or in the Bible Belt or in L.A., and, and nothing will get a preacher stale faster than doing something because it's always been done that way. Yeah. And so you have to be willing to adapt. I would say also uh, what keeps me fresh is equipping others. Um, we've, we've been working hard to, our model is a discipleship model, um, trying to disciple and equip uh, a new generation of preachers within our church that keeps me fresh. Yeah. Um, because number one, I don't have to preach every Sunday. And number two, um, I get to hear uh, fresh perspective from newly discipled uh, pastoral level leaders, which is very exciting. And then lastly, I would say um, the importance of keeping a regular Sabbath to stay fresh is like utmost importance. Um, and, and so like I can certainly share some resources and some books I've read that have resonated with me, but really like on a, just on a principle level, I would say like learning to, to transition in your ministry without needing to relocate is, is, is key to staying fresh. That's, that's fantastic. That's a unique answer that, you know, we, we haven't heard yet. And and some of the interviews, so that I I really really like that being able to change, challenge yourself, reinvent your approaches, um, overhaul your styles, 
uh, in a way that it could connect with the people that God's called you to reach without, like you said, moving and going to a new place, that it's usually not the location that needs to change, but it's the the preacher, the preacher that needs to change. So um, one kind of more question about your process before we shift gears and give you an opportunity to talk to um, the kind of the young leaders, young preachers that and uh, that make up the majority of the audience. So that walk us through. So you got you've been, you've been staying fresh. You're constantly reading, learning, growing. You're practicing Sabbath so that you can have that decompressed time. Your mind can rest. And often when you're resting, those are when the thoughts kind of flow and come. So you get that spark of inspiration or you get that direction mm-hmm. from the Lord. And you're getting ready to preach in Angelus Church. You're getting ready to preach uh, um, on a Sunday morning. Walk us through the process from that. I have this idea, this sure. thought from God, this this passage of Scripture, all the way up to you're walking to the pulpit. <clears throat> yeah. So when you um, invited me to come on this podcast, I really started thinking about this because I know I have a process, but I've never really, I don't think I've ever really like actually thought about it and kind of formulated it in my own mind. Um, But I started thinking about what I do, and I wrote this down. And uh, the first thing I do is I read. So that's the first thing. And and I don't just read the text. I read, I I remember this this, um, statement made in a book called The Glory of Preaching by Daryl Johnson. Um, It's a good book, I recommend it, but he said to read the text aloud in four different translations. So if you read something and it resonates and you're like, okay, I feel like God's sort of, you know, sparking something in me to preach on this text. He said to read the text aloud um, in four different translations repeatedly out loud in a room by yourself. And the point of that is to be able to hear the way that it would hear to everybody else and sort of that has helped me um, to hear it out loud because, you know, obviously like predominantly we read in silence. Um, I read a book. I typically don't read the book out loud. That would be awkward. It would be. (laughs) Um, But reading the text out loud. So number one, I would read number two, I would record um, from what I've read. And so I would start making an outline and I would set out the passages verse by verse and what I do is I look for connections um, in the narrative arc. And so early on, like, I'm a creative. And so I was trying to force myself into this linear pattern of outlining where I would just literally get on, like, a notes app or, like, pages or Word, what have you. And I would just start, like, bullet point um, outlining. And it wasn't really working for the way that I think. And so... Um, my thinking is a little more spatial as opposed to linear. And so I stumbled across this website called Sketchnote Army. And I started doing this thing called sketchnoting where I take notes all over a page. And it, for some people, for like OCD people, it's, uh, it, it would probably give them hives. <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll write a note on this side of the page, a note on that side of the page, and then I'll literally draw arrows and like doodles, like my sixth grade English teacher would be so furious with me right now because she used to hate how much I doodled. But what she didn't understand was in that doodling, I was actually learning. 
And so like in my spatial way of thinking, I'll sketch note. And that's really helped me may not be for everybody, but it's helped me. And so some of my journals that just, they look chaotic. Um, they look insane, but I've, I've been able to connect certain story lines in the narrative that way for me. So read, record. Um, the third step for me would be research. I don't do research until I've fully read and fully recorded. So I want to fully read. I want to, I want to process this my own way. Uh, I want to record this my own way. And obviously we're, you know, the foundation for all this, I think, um, we could say it goes without saying, but it doesn't go without saying is obviously prayer, been in prayer and fasting and I've stayed fresh and I've kept my Sabbath. And, and so I'm in a good place as a preacher, but when I read and I record, that's me, that's my God given mind, um, and creativity going into this. Only at that point do I introduce any commentaries because, um, I like, I I feel like commentary should be used as a tool and not a foundation. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to preach Matthew Henry. No, not at all. Um, that's, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not he. So, um, once like my, my, uh, outline is sort of well on its way, I'll start introducing some commentary study and then the, I would reinforce it with illustrations. So I would read, I would record, I would research, and then I would reinforce. I would try to find some illustrations. Um, I typically put pins on different illustrations. I read different articles, different, you know, different talks that I stumble across that I I feel like could be used as a good uh, illustration. And then I, uh, I would call this like the reveal. I would write the manuscript. I'm a manuscript guy. Like I write the whole thing out, like everything word for word. And then, uh, and then I would refine it by rewriting the manuscript. And we could probably do that to infinity, but, um, you know, a Tanzanian proverb said that which is good is never finished. And so it, I feel like, I don't know that I've ever finished a sermon. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I because you. as you're preaching it, you're always, at least me, the way my mind thinks, I'm always thinking of, oh man, I could have developed this thought more, or I could have put more into this aspect of this message. And, but I always go back to Isaiah 55. It won't return empty. It won't return void. And it will accomplish the desire and, you know, the purpose uh, for which it was sent. So that's kind of my process. Read, record, research, reinforce, reveal, and refine. And I literally thought about that and wrote that out. And I made <laughs> sure because I appreciate a good alliteration. Yes. Yeah, I yeah, made yeah. sure to start everything with R-E. <laughs> so I was pretty impressed by that. That's cool. I, the record part, um, it made me feel really good. Because if you saw my notebooks as well, there's multiple different colors of ink, stuffs and block letters, stuffs and cursive script. And then there's arrows. It literally is like a brainstorm, an explosion of like just different thoughts. And then eventually I start trying to put it all together. But I, I, I'm with you, man. I cannot do the linear thing either. I have to I have to just get ideas out and then a pattern starts to form and uh but now this this doesn't make me feel as crazy cuz if you <laughs> you look at my notebook it's just it's it's everywhere just there's stuff everywhere it's like not written I have an idea notebook it's just all blank pages um there's no lines so I can write in any direction I want yeah 
And uh, so that was good. That the record part, that was like, okay, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm a normal person. <laughs> cause, cause you do the same thing. Now let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, and let's, let's, uh, one of the things I always want to do at the close of the podcast, sure. we take, yeah. you know, three questions and we give you an opportunity to talk to the next generation. Now, as uh, you and I were talking earlier and, um, you know, in the world of the Apostolic Church and our movement, you and I are still both, we're both young um, and that there a majority of our, of, you know, our ministers and our elders, they're in their, their fifties and sixties. Um, but you are, you are approaching, you're approaching the exit ramp of, of your thirties. And so you, you're, you're in this in-between space where, you are still young yeah. and uh, as a result can relate to uh, in a tremendous way because uh, you're not that far removed from the 20 somethings. Your church is predominantly 20 somethings, but you also have, as you said, nearly two decades or two decades of ministry leadership and preaching experience. And so let's talk to that next gen yeah. um, that's coming up that they're in they're in their late teens. They're in their early to mid twenties, um, and you know, thirty for some is looming on the horizon. And thirty can be at times a scary age because it's like, oh man, what am I? I got to be an adult now. Um, so when you look, when you travel around, you've deputized. What what would you say you admire the most about the Gen Zs and millennials that are? beginning to become involved in ministry and in leadership and preaching in the apostolic church. What, what do you admire most about a new generation, this new generation of, of leaders and preachers? Yeah, I, I love their passion for worship. Um, you know, you probably would remember this Adam, but like our generation so often, um, yeah, here's what I love. Like the hallways of youth Congress are empty during worship and preaching. That's incredible. I, yeah, you're right. The hallways of our, of our uh, youth convention facilities are empty during preaching and worship. And, um, it wasn't that way. No, in our generation. No, no, it wasn't. Like when I was like 15, you know, it wasn't that way. Uh, all the cool kids were out in the lobby. You know what I mean? And, uh, and just, just honestly, like, you know, all the, all the nerds or whatever, all the super spiritual kids, you know, they were the ones that, yeah. were, that wanted to like, like sit in with the preaching and, and really go hard for worship. I love that about this generation. Um, like, uh, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable how passionate they are about, uh, worship, about the word of God. Um, I love how engaged they are in mission mm -hmm. the concept of being on mission does not scare them like in the least in fact it entices them it excites them um they want to go like we're having record attendance on our ayc trips and um, our missions trips and things of that nature we have more uh, young people interested in uh, church planting in uh, global missions and and in missions here at home, and uh, that's so exciting. And some of the most dynamic young preachers that I've ever seen in my and I and what so, so like young for us is I got seated at a young minister's table recently, and I'm like, 
man, I'm almost 40. Um, <laughs> but I guess, I guess we're still kids in this thing. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? Yeah. But, uh, um, I'm talking like, um, I'll just drop some names, you know, I, I Landon Gore and James Wilson and, and <laughs> excuse me, guys like this are so apostolic, man. They're so yeah. passionate and they're so effective. Um, I love, absolutely this generation. They're young. They're like early twenties and they're like preaching these amazing revivals and seeing, they're just like walking on faith and seeing crazy amounts of people get the Holy ghost and healings happen. And there's something very, very special and very unique about this generation. And um, that is that is like definitely not um, cliche. There's uh, there's just I, I, I can't even articulate how special yeah. this generation is. There is a deep call of God that is on their life. Yeah. And so I guess the follow up question is that what is something that they need to work on. So we have this passion, this desire for mission that has created such a raw authenticity uh, and such a hunger for God. People, at least when I, the people I'm interacting with, there's not as much of a care about positions or like that people just want to, they want to do something that makes like a difference. They want to see impact happen. And like, you're right, the, the worship and being there in the ministry and the preaching and, and not chilling in the hallways that just everybody wants to be where the action's at and where God is moving so they can hear that. And so this obviously creates limitless potential as far as what God can, when God, God can, someone who's a worshiper and passionate and authentic and desires to serve, God can do amazing things with that generation. But there always will be those red flags that if they're out of control, they will thwart and, and destroy that mission and passion potential that's there. And so what are some things that we need to work on? What are those red flags that you see that you're like, oh, you're an amazing generation, but if this, if this takes captive yeah. your heart and mind, this will, this will destroy everything that's good yeah. or, or, or rob its effectiveness. What are those things? Well, I think, um, I think w- with, with every uh, great, call there's obviously a great pull and and there is a phenomenal force that is pulling on this generation um there is an incredible call but there is a very forceful pull on their hearts um i i mentioned this i think last night or the night before in this in this hyphen retreat but i had sat on a panel recently a couple years ago it was actually at a hyphen conference and uh, the question was asked of me um, or is asked of the panel, what does this generation need? You know? And, and to be honest with you, it was like borderline offensive. This question, what do we need? Like, have you, have you seen what we have lately? We have better facilities than we've ever had. Uh, we have better resources than we've ever had. Uh, we have access to everything imaginable. Like, like imagine what Paul in the early church could have done as industrious as they were with the tools that we have, right? So the question that we're still asking, what do we need, is like an insane question to me. We literally don't need anything. In fact, I would say we have more than what we need. Because when you have more than what you need, you lose your, your industriousness, your your entrepreneurial drive, right? That's true in business. That's true in 
That's true in everything. When you have more than what you need, right? We talked about this the other day. Some people just have too much money. Some people just have too many resources. When you have more than what you need, you lose your drive on some level. And so, and I, and I said that to, to this panel and I said, we don't need anything. This generation doesn't need anything. So you're asking a question that previous generations were asking because they didn't have the resources we had. So they were like legit asking, what do we need? Yeah. Like what building should we build? What, what resource should we pursue? Like what type of conference should we put on? Like we have every conference you can imagine. Great conferences. You know, we having uh, youth Congress in a football stadium, like, and we're still talking about what do we need? And we have the largest gathering of Christian young people in North America. And we're still over here saying, Hey, what do we need? The question is not, what do we need? So the question then becomes, what do we love? And so while there is an unbelievable call from this generation, the red flag I see is this pull by the world, the things of this world. And I don't think it's really anything new, although I would say it's so increased in this generation just simply by the nature of access. We have access to everything. Everything is at our fingertips. And, um, and we can watch anything. We can, uh, we can listen to anything. Uh, we can do anything we want to do through an app. Yeah. You know? we, can, we can call a car to come pick us up and go anywhere through an app. We can, I mean, so we have this unbelievable pull to the things of the world. And if we're not careful, uh, if this generation is not careful, this overwhelming call of God that is on their life will be lost in the pulling. And so I would just challenge from the bottom of my heart, this generation, love not the world. Yeah. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. For, for if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus was was not vague about this. The Bible is not vague about this. God is... God is graceful and God is merciful and God can deal with your, God can deal with your issues and God can deal with your sin and God can deal with your, your problems and your wounds and your hesitations and your self-doubting. But there's one thing he'll never stand for is, is, is when we love the world. He won't, he'll share his goodness with you, but he won't share his glory with anybody. No man can serve two masters because you're going to love one and despise the other. I would challenge this generation let go. The more you have access to, the less you should have. The, the less you should allow yourself to have. Yeah. Uh, let go of some of the things of this world. And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe for some it's canceling a Netflix subs- a subscription. I, I really don't know. Maybe it's that practical. Maybe for some it's a relationship, whatever it might be. But you just, I, my challenge to this generation would be don't fall in love with the things of this world. This world is not our home. Yeah. You know, maybe it's time to dust off the songbooks and sing some of those old songs again. You know, this world is not my home. Just passing through. Yeah, I'm just, there's some good theology in that. There's some great theology in that. Now, I was thinking the practical application of that as well. Um, one of the devotional sessions, um, one of our the director of promotions for Ontario Youth, Dan Phillips, he had a chance to, he had a chance to go to lunch with him um, yesterday. Yeah. He talked about envy in his devotional session, and he said the crazy thing about our generation, he's echoing some of the same sentiments, is that with technology, you know, it's people have been envious since sin entered the human race, but now we're envious of people that we've never met. We're envious of people that um, live a whole world away, and right. we judge our unfiltered life through their filtered, you know, their 
you know, their 1,000 photos to post that one photo. We, and we become envious of that. Um, and uh, we become so distracted by it. And the thing that he said, which I, it was so practical, but it, I think it echoes the, the principle you're, you're conveying, is that it, if there are people that you're following on social media that are pulling your heart mm. to be unsatisfied and, and upset with what God has given you and where he is leading you, and dissatisfied with the blessings that he has already bestowed upon you. You either need to unfollow those people or you need to dump that app because you don't need, you don't need this so bad that you, uh, that you will let your soul become so empty yeah. with unhappiness. Yeah. And I was like, that is, it, it ties in with what you're saying. And it was, I thought it was a very pragmatic approach to just being hard on yourself and saying, I'm being pulled. Like you're saying, I'm being pulled in this direction, a direction of worldliness, a direction of, you know, selfishness and envy. And these things are poison to my soul and they're poison to the anointing God has put inside my heart. And I need to get rid of them. I need to get rid of them. Man, this has been so uh, fantastic. One of the things we always do is we always close at the interview by giving, by giving the guest the last word. And so that's what I want to do. I want you to speak to the generation of leaders that are listening and and I, I, give us the last word. If I could say anything to this to this generation uh, of leaders, I would I would just say um, be radical. Um, I mentioned this early in, um, and I'm not talking about radical in terms of like you know like a. There's books on, on shelves of really, uh, really comfortable places, like really nice bookstores and Christian bookstores, good coffee shops, and talking about being radical. I'm not talking about that kind of like pseudo radical, sort of vague radical. I'm talking about it's, it's really time to uh, sacrifice everything for the kingdom of God. God is calling this generation to do things that uh, we, we've probably never seen before in our lifetime, but it, it's not going to happen through our resources. It's really not. It's not going to happen through. It's not going. It's not going to happen through our money. It's not going to happen because we have more than we've ever had. It's going to happen when a generation of young people gets so radical for the gospel of Jesus Christ that they're willing to lay everything on the line, sacrifice everything, and move to a city move to a mission field or maybe maybe not move maybe stay where you're at for some people that's radical like there's some young people right now that may be listening to this that like you 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 want to leave and go somewhere because you have this idea that going to new york would be really awesome you know or going overseas or whatever and maybe god the most radical thing you could do is submit and stay where you're at and let god use you and bless you there but I would just say, like, in this, in this world full of abundance, in this Western culture full of excess, let's be radical in our sacrifice. Let's be radical in our generosity. Let's be radical in our giving. And, uh, and let's see what God will do in this generation. I, I just I truly believe that the ends of the earth, the ends of the world are upon this generation. And we're going to see an amazing revival uh, uh, through, through their, the work of their hands, God using them this next generation. Um, but it, it's, it's time to get radical. It's time to sacrifice on, on a, a, a truly radical level.